Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm not recommending it, but if you're in the market for a small, intimate wedding venue, Elvis is on sale in Las Vegas. For a limited time, you can have an Elvis impersonator marry you legally for up to 70% off. Not only will he marry you, he'll sing some of his greatest hits. As many as your budget or your hearing will stand, depending on your negotiating skills. Or you can just buy a package. The ultimate package at the Elvis Wedding Chapel includes an ordained version of the king himself performing the ceremony, 15 photos, three live songs, live streaming so your friends and family who wouldn't be caught dead there in person can watch discreetly, an Elvis marriage certificate, and even a pair of Elvis sunglasses you get to keep. Now, if you've been thinking it's time to make it official, this may be just a push your special other half might need. It was previously a bargain of just $699, but right now you can get it for the low, low price of just $299. That's pretty big savings. When the average cost of a wedding in the United States in 2021 hovered around $30,000. You could probably get the real Elvis to come back for that payday. Of course, there's some fine print and a lot of optional uh, extras like renting a limo or costumes that'll let the happy couple get hitched dressed just like the king himself. Or, and I'm just guessing here, the $5,000 fee they'll charge you to take your big moment off YouTube once you sober up and realize what you've done. Okay, so maybe you're more the traditional type, right? Or more likely your mother is, maybe. And you've decided to get married in a church. There's a concept, right? And that would be my advice. But there's no guarantee that it won't, you know, end up being hilarious or embarrassing or memorable in, uh, in a different kind of way. There are actually discussion groups online dedicated to, to sharing their wedding fails. Um, like this one. Said, she said, check the, date of, uh, the, check the state of your DJ's love life before allowing them to work your wedding. Our DJ was dumped the night before the ceremony, and she only played breakup songs at the reception. In the end, the bride took over for a few hours. Now, these stories are funny now, but you can imagine they were anything but at the time, right? Um, when we lit the unity candle, it burned a hole through my veil. We couldn't get the unity candle to light. I left my husband's ring in the back room. My husband tried to be romantic and dip me for our first kiss. Unfortunately, he dropped me, so I'm out of the frame in all those pictures. <laughs> my dad walked me down the aisle, and just before he gave me away to my fiance, he asked, did you bring the money? <laughs> <laughs> this, one, this one says, I thought it was assumed that I, the maid of honor, should catch the bouquet. I ended up fighting with a 10-year-old for it. And after yelling, please, I'm 24, I decided to let her have it because she'll probably get married before me anyway. <laughs> then her mom made her give it back. You know, every happy couple wants a wedding day, to, their wedding day to be perfect, right? But perfect doesn't always happen. That's what was about to happen at the wedding in our gospel lesson this morning, an epic fail. In Jesus' day, it was common for a wedding to last an entire week Seven days was the Jewish custom. Seven days of feasting and drinking and abstaining from work and enjoying the company of friends and loved ones just to share in the new family's joy. Now that's a party, and it couldn't have come cheap. It gives you an idea about the, of the, the pressure mounting at a wedding in Cana of Galilee on the day the wine ran out. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. 
so was Jesus and some of the first disciples he had called to follow him. We don't know what connection they all had to the bride and groom, but we know Jesus' mother was close enough to have had been involved in making sure that things went right. Could have been a relative, maybe, or a close friend. John doesn't tell us. Uh, and things went wrong. She goes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. Now, we're not told how far into the week this happened, but the wine certainly helped fuel the festive atmosphere. It not only gladdens the heart, as the psalmist says, it also held a spiritual significance. It served as a sign and a symbol of the joy and the blessing that flow from God's right hand into the hearts and lives of his family, his believers. If the wine ran out, so would the guests, bringing the celebration to an early grinding halt, leaving the host both embarrassed and shamed. So we can't be sure why it happened. Uh, some speculate it was because the couple was poor. Maybe they couldn't afford very much to begin with. Others guessed that Jesus and his disciples um, maybe they were unexpected guests and they used up what little uh, uh, you know, play there was in an already tight, tightly rationed supply. All that really matters, though, is that this set the stage for the Lord's first miracle. When Mary informs Jesus of the dilemma, his response is, uh, it sounds at first unwarranted and extreme, almost dismissive. Woman, he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We hear that throughout Jesus' ministry. Uh, my hour has not yet come. Or he would heal somebody, and then, we, then he would say, now don't tell anybody. And of course, you know, they did. People would know. In this case, he's still laying the groundwork for his ministry, though. He had so much teaching to do yet, and he had so much to reveal about God and his plan of salvation, so much to teach about forgiveness, about grace. Besides, he wasn't a, a magician. He was a savior. His use of the word woman toward his mother actually wasn't really derogatory. Uh, it simply indicated a change in their relationship. He was, he was uh, her savior too. Mary had no idea really about God's timing for her son. It's also a reminder that Mary would have no part in our redemption. Even though centuries later, some, would, would, some people would attempt to raise her to the level of co-redemptrix, which is really nothing less than idolatrous. Remember, Jesus has just embarked on his ministry. You know, we heard about his baptism last week. Well, with the Father looking on, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. From the Jordan, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted and tested by Satan. Every temptation overcome with the word of God. Now he'd begun calling his disciples. But up until now, we'd never had a miracle from him. Now, we heard a story from one of the so-called infancy gospels a couple of weeks ago about how as a young child he would make animals out of clay and then bring them to life to the delight of his friends. But uh, it's actually another source that includes a story about a young Jesus. Uh, as the ever-dutiful son, it says he helped the family in their carpentry business. Now, every carpenter knows this rule. Measure twice, cut once. Right? Because if a board's too short, you can't stretch it to fit. Um, not then and not now. Unless Jesus is your son. According to this mythical tale, Joseph wasn't too good a carpenter. It says that every time a product of his workshop came out the wrong size, which apparently was fairly often, Joseph would ask Jesus to, to uh, fix it. And the young Jesus would wave his hand over the finished piece, miraculously stretching or shrinking it to the right size, much to the delight of his earthly father, Joseph, and the customer. Now, these stories were total fiction, and they were written to fulfill a desire uh, people had for more stories about our Lord Jesus. 
our youth. They were never really uh, accepted by the church, and they were even deemed heretical. Um, they weren't needed, though, because uh, they aren't a necessary part of our salvation story. The point is that Mary didn't go to Jesus for a miraculous fix because she'd seen him miraculously fixing things growing up at home. Other than growing up without sin, he'd been raised just like most other young Jewish boys of his time. His divine powers set aside until the time was right. But Mary had already experienced the miraculous when an angel appeared to her to tell her about her miraculous pregnancy. She was to be the virgin mother of the Son of God, the promised Savior. So she knew who he was. You know, remember how she pondered all these things in her heart. Now that Jesus had come into his own at his baptism, he wasn't speaking to her as her son, but as her Savior. His response indicates that he knew she expected him to perform a miracle. And he knew that his disciples could probably use a sign. So does Mary go on to lay out a case for him? No. In fact, she turns to the servants standing nearby and tells them to do whatever he tells them. Uh, no wine, no worries, right? The miracle itself is pretty straightforward. He tells them to fill six large water jars standing nearby. Each one would have been capable of holding as much as uh, maybe 25 or 30 gallons. The water would be used for washing hands before and after eating, ritual cleansing, and just water, washing the cups, the pitchers, and kettles for the dinner. Um, as soon as they were filled, he asked them to uh, take some to the master of the feast. Remember, you couldn't turn on a, just turn on the tap in those days, okay? And with the, all the guests at the wedding feast, uh, you had to have plenty on hand. That probably explains the, the large amount. So they take a, a cup to the steward in charge of the details, the master of the feast, he was called. The water had now become wine, and not some cheap box wine or anything either. Now, he, this guy didn't know where it had come from. And he comments to, that contrary to tradition, where the best wine would be served first, um, he knew that they must have saved their best for last. At any rate, it's a lot of wine. And you can imagine the struggles this story caused some pastors during the temperance movement, the prohibition years in, in our country. You know, some of them would preach that it was simply grape juice. Or maybe that it was common in those days for people to uh, water down their wine three parts to one. But uh, both are really, both those theories are wishful thinking. The word for wine used in the original Greek text is only used for wine, not juice. And it's translated from a Hebrew word having to do with fermentation. The Bible doesn't speak against the use of alcohol, but it has a lot to say about overindulging and drunkenness. So if it isn't because of his mother's influence and it wasn't his time, why did Jesus do it? Well, in the first place, his new disciples needed confirmation that their faith hadn't been misplaced. It was brand new, and it needed to be nourished so it could blossom and, and stay strong in the face of all the things that lay ahead for them. Uh, Jesus uh, didn't do this, don't forget, uh, in front of the whole reception either. Only the disciples and the servants had seen it, seen it happen. They were the only witnesses. Even the wedding steward didn't know, you know where this fine wine came from. But the most important reason, I think, and John's deeper point in sharing this miracle at Cana is to tell us that Christ, in Christ, the consummation of all the words of all the prophets and even God himself are coming true. Redemption was closer than ever. When we look at the blood of the cross and the emptiness of the tomb, we see more than just a reason to be hopeful. We see a guarantee of our hope for future. We have, you know, much more than just wedding album memories. 
We have an undeniable destiny through our Savior's perfect life, his atoning death in our place, and his glorious resurrection. Because the wedding in Cana wasn't the failure, failure it might have been if our Lord hadn't been there, you and I can breathe a sigh of relief. That wedding was just the beginning of a whole new era. You know, the kingdom of God was not only being ushered in, it was being opened up to everyone who believe, would believe that the Christ child in the manger was the true man and true God savior of the whole world. God loves wedding imagery. Why wouldn't he? He's the author of marriage. The book of Genesis talks about the first marriage and bond of love between God and the first couple, Adam and Eve. And even though that trust was broken when they disobeyed God and they had to kind of scratch out a living of their own, he still promised them a Savior who would come one day to make all things right again, who by faith can still rebuild all the bridges we've burned between this sinful world and eternity in heaven. The Old Testament's portrayal of our race run and faith's goal achieved is told in terms of a great heavenly banquet. It's God's promise through the prophet Isaiah. And it's often read at funerals because it's, it's talking about the life to come. It's in Isaiah 25. It says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Isaiah's message was to the Jews who were living in exile in Babylon, cast out from the wedding banquet in the promised land. To a people who had lost their homes because they chose to chase after other so-called gods and had sought security in their own human plans only to become a broken people, it was good news indeed. God had not forgotten them. He would rescue them and and return them to their homes once more. That's not with banquet imagery, you know, wedding feasts, a renewed bond and vow of trust. For us, it's a portrait in human terms of just how big a celebration heaven is going to be one day, when we can only get a foretaste of in the bread and wine of Holy Communion, you know, where we receive the forgiveness of all our sins through the, through, by faith in the, the broken body and, and, and the shed blood of Christ. Much of Jesus' audience in his early ministry thought that they had the market cornered on salvation by trusting in their heritage as Jews, not their Savior. The Bible likes to talk about his relationship and, and believers in terms of him being the bridegroom and his church, the body of believers, uh, being the bride. But God's not going to round everybody up and drag them to his son's wedding banquet on the last day. Jesus has come to open the door for anyone who, by faith, wants to come in. He reminded the Jews who disbelieved and worked against him that the bridegroom wasn't always going to be with them, that the doors to the feast would one day be closed forever. And that's true. You know, we live in the present, but in Christ we're filled with hope for the future. Jesus suffered and died for his bride. He bestows his wedding garment and holy baptism. That's not just life-saving. That's life-changing good news. The forgiveness of sins always leads to joy. Sure, the Christmas bills are pouring in, your cat has COVID and your feet hurt because the slippers you got from your kids for Christmas are too small and you don't have the heart to tell them. But in spite of all our worldly challenges, there's always reason to rejoice for the bride of Christ. You have the only thing that really matters for the past, the present, and the future. Being right with God. Reconciled to the creator of the whole universe. Sins forgiven, death conquered, a seat at the heavenly banquet table waiting. 
As we move through this epiphany season, witnessing Jesus being revealed as true God and true man, and one day as true king overall, may the lessons and the worship remind us that uh, life will never be an epic failure as long as the king is in the house. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.